There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's great to have you with us again. As we return from the long 4th of July weekend in which we thought about our founding fathers and the vision of liberty they set out for us, today's episode is about another hero who served our country with distinction. Medal of Honor recipient and Army Master Sergeant Raul Roy Benavidez. Our guest today is Roy Benavidez's daughter, Yvette Benavidez Garcia, who is the author of the book, Tango Mike Mike, the story of Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. Yvette, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks for your time. The, the honor is mine. So we'll get to that fateful morning of May 2nd, 1968 in a few moments. But first, let's start at the very start of your dad's life. When and where was he born and who were his parents? So my dad was born on August the 5th, 1935 in Lindenau, Texas, which is a small community right outside of Cuero, Texas, which is the turkey capital of the world, according to my dad. And his parents were Salvador and Teresa Perez Benavides. And describe Cuero, Texas in the 1930s and 1940s and what life was like for a sharecropper's family there. Well, you know, my dad, when um, he was born there in Lindenau, moved to, I guess they lived there in Lindenau and were, was in Quero. He really didn't spend too much time there because he was orphaned at an early age. So he moved to El Campo, Texas, and it was during his El Campo, Texas years that he was, I guess, considered a migrant student. They were a migrant family, and they traveled from city to city, state to state, looking for jobs. And so as a sharecropper, he was working always out into the out in the fields picking cotton um sugar beet cane um just whatever you know crops that they could i guess pick and um so life for him was really hard during that time especially for a young kid who um really wanted to go to school but really couldn't because he was always working and at that point he was always working he had to drop out of school in the seventh grade why was that Yes. Well, you know, because he was always working in the fields and as a migrant student, they were working, uh, moving from job to job to job. He would work, wake up very early in the morning, work out in the fields and then make his way back to school. And uh, of course, when he was in school, he was very tired. Um, he wasn't learning anything because he was always sleeping because he was waking up so early. Then after school, he'd go back out to the fields and he'd pick, you know, cotton some more, pick the crops and then start the day over again and do the same thing. And so he really wasn't learning anything while he was in school. Um, people would call him a dumb Mexican. And I believe he felt dumb because he wasn't learning anything. And as an educator myself, I see that with kids who are staying up, working. I'm in the high school. Uh, I work Work with high school students and there's a lot of kids who you know come to school tired and exhausted for whatever reason we don't know what their family life is like at home if they're working multiple jobs but you know imagine this young child who is literally waking up at probably 4 4 30 going out until the 
to the fields and picking the crops in the hot sun, um, working and then walking to school and then getting there and then just sleeping his way through class. So um, he made it to about the seventh, eighth grade. And then um, unfortunately, he had to drop out. And that was something that he regretted all of his life um, was dropping out of school. He went into the Texas National Guard in 1952 during the Korean War. What was his motivation for doing that? Um, you know, he was working odd jobs and living the life of a of a school dropout. And so um, it was typical for him to have several jobs. And he was just living that typical dropout life. And um, the more he, he had heard about the Texas National Guard and the more he heard about it, the more he became intrigued and he wanted to learn more, obviously, about it. Um, so, um, that I think motivated him. Um, and some of the people who he had met, I guess, had been in the national guard and, um, he just, you know, wanted to pursue that. And, and I felt, I think he felt like he could get an education that way. If he had joined the national guard, um, he could earn some type of education. And so, um, he ended up joining and staying in for three years and then ultimately moving into the, the military, the army. So why do you make that career move from the National Guard to the U.S. Army? What made him make that switch? I think um, some of the instructors that he had in the Texas National Guard were inspiring to him and had talked about their experiences and the people that they knew. Um, and so um, obviously that piqued his curiosity. Um, he knew he could probably travel the world and um, learn different um, languages and learn different um things uh, with the military. And more importantly, he had seen um, Audie Murphy's um, movie to hell and back. And that I think Audie Murphy was his somebody who he idolized and, and um, could look up to and was his hero. And so um, when he saw that movie as a as a young kid, it obviously inspired him to probably want to join the military. And then um, and so he did. He married your mom in 1959. How did they meet and why were they a good match for each other? Well, you know, they say opposites opposites attract and um, they're very polar, much polar opposites. But um, they did, they met, my dad talks about it in one of his books um, that they'd known each other since they were 12 years old. And he had seen my mom, obviously they lived in the same town, but he had seen my mom at weddings and parties and, and things like that. And so he had always seen her and um, felt attracted to her, you know, thought she was cute, pretty, and uh, but never really got to meet her. And then somewhere along the line, um, he did meet up with her and he ended up taking her out to lunch one day. She worked at a local department store called Zlotnik's and he ended up taking her to lunch and their uh, relationship grew from there. However, she was from a very strict family. So um, if there was going to be any kind of dating that was going to go on, it had to be chaperoned. <clears throat> so, and she had um, 10 siblings. So she had numerous brothers who could be the chaperone for those dates, but they really didn't date um, per se because he was shipped off to Germany and, but they did communicate via letters and he would send her pictures. And so they kind of dated through um, writing and, um, and it was one of the, he came back for a leave. Um, and during one of those times um, he got to go out with her, but 
prior to that, he had to write his uncle, uh, Nicholas, who was his adopted father, and wrote the, their priest, the local priest, and asked them if they could intervene and kind of put in some good words to my grandfather, which was my mom's dad, because he, re- he knew that when he came back to El Campo, he'd want to start dating her. And so his uncle Nick and the priest actually went and talked to my mom's father and asked for permission for when he did come, if they could date. And he granted permission, but said that they had to do it supervised. And so dad always talked about how the dates that they went on, one of her brothers was always there. So that's how they um, they met and courted. And, and it's really sweet because I, um, I'm the keeper of a lot of my dad's um, picture books, um, photo albums. And a lot of the photos that he sent my mom from when he was overseas, if you turn them over, um, his handwritten uh, signature is on there. And he has a little saying that says, to my one and only, love Roy Benavides. And so he always sent her a lot of the pictures have to my one and only, to my one and only. So it's very sweet um, that he would communicate with her that way. And there's always a brother there as the third wheel. So it wasn't quite the one and only. Yes. (laughs) He served in the Army for quite a while before his first tour in Vietnam in the mid-1960s. Did he enjoy his time in the service during those years? I'm sure he did. Um, My dad uh, was meant for the military, and once he got in the military, he had a family for life. And so I do believe that he enjoyed um, serving his country and uh, defending the honor that he needed to defend for our country and the the rights to protect our rights. Um, So, yeah, I wholeheartedly um, believe that he enjoyed his time in the military, no matter the danger that uh, that came along with it. Um, you know, he, he did enjoy it. And would you share the story of that first tour of duty when he was a military advisor to the South Vietnamese army? Yeah. So when, um, his first tour in Vietnam, um, I don't quite know how long he had been there a couple of months, I guess, but, um, he was going on patrol. And so my dad had Asian features. Um, if, if you don't know what he looks like, um, he, he did not look like a Mexican American descent. Um, he looked more like, um, Asian. And so he was going on patrol and they had him dressed in the black pajamas and the, the Ho Chi Minh, um, sandals. And so he was going out and, um, somehow, some way he must have stepped on a landmine because obviously he didn't remember. He spent two months in a coma after that, but um, uh, some Marines had found him um, laying on the trail and thought he was uh, an Asian um, and um, he was the enemy. And it was upon, you know, they had to be careful because they didn't know if he was booby trapped or anything. And so as they inspected his body further, they found his um, dog tag sewed into his pajamas. And so they they read the the tag and it said Benavides Sergeant. And then it said um, RP. And so they knew that this was one of their own. Um, he got medevaced back to Sam um, Houston Brick Army Medical Facility in Sam Houston in, um, in San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. And he was two months in a coma. And when he came out of his coma, he um, had to obviously re- 
you know, regain his senses again. But that's when they deemed him that he was never going to walk again. Um, and he didn't even know if he was going to regain his senses because the jolt of the blast had rattled his brain so severely that, um, you know, he had to relearn, obviously, to do things over again. But they did indeed tell him that he was paralyzed from the waist down. And so he began therapy. Um, trying to walk again, um, didn't quite ever, you know, walk that well after that. Uh, so they were pretty much going to deem him, give him, you know, um, I guess, uh, give him a discharge from the military, have him work a desk job, you know, and they were gearing his life to therapy on how he could live being um, um, paralyzed from the waist down, you know, without the use of his legs. And he refused that type of therapy. He was like, you know, I, I, I feel like I can walk again. And of course this was during a time when now I feel like technology is, is so much more greater, obviously that if somebody is in that predicament, they can hook them up to machines and machines can, you know, rewire the brain and trigger and, and help movement and things like that. And so obviously they didn't have that back then. So all of this, he had to do on his own. And so at night, as the story goes, if you've heard anything about his um, therapy, he would um, crawl on the floor up against the wall, hoist himself up against two tables and try to, you know, regain, regain arm strength and then try to stand as long as he could and put pressure on those legs. Um, most of the time he would fall back down to the ground. Um, his room buddies would place bets to see if he could, how long he could stand, whether or not he would walk again. Um, the orderlies and the nurses would come in when they'd heard the thump and they'd pick him up and hoist him back on the bed and then he'd do it all over again. And so that was his type of therapy. And it took about eight year, eight months to a year. And um, he finally um, walked out of that hospital. Um, he walked out with a limp but he did walk out of that hospital and he was in severe pain after that. Um, you know, but, um, that was obviously one of the goals that he wanted to, um, to get was to walk again. So his recovery was eight to 12 months. What did he return to duty at that point? Was it a desk job? Was it active duty? It was, it was, he was going to, um, be, um, work, at, behind the desk and he was shipped off and, I don't know if he went to Georgia at that time, Fort Benning, but he did have a desk job and um, he just knew that wasn't for him. Uh, you know, he, he was really depressed about it and he knew that he wanted to get back into airborne um, jump from, you know, uh, the airplanes. And right before that, he had put in his um, submission to uh, join the Green Berets. And so after that, um, he knew that if he wanted to be in the Green Berets, he had to be physically fit, not only physically fit, but mentally fit. And so he started exercising, you know, running, um, doing whatever he could to get back into shape. Um, it was a long, hard process. He also knew that they had to um, jump, you know, do some jumps every day for like three months or something. I don't know what it was, but um, he needed he needed to get back out and start jumping again. And so he kind of, you know, finagled his the signature to allow him to do that. But, um, you know, this is a man who was going to do whatever it takes um, to jump again and, and to join the Green Berets. So um, he ended up jumping again. And, you know, his first landing obviously was not very good. His second landing, he went, did it again and got better and then so on and so forth. But, 
Um, he was in excruciating pain every time he made the the landing. Um, but you know, that just shows the the pure determination that he had. Well, to that point, listening to you, he was determined to go back to Vietnam, clearly. Why was he so determined to go back? You know, probably love for his fellow man, love for his country. And he knew what was going on in the world with the war. And um, he wanted to get over there and defend his country. So um, he was eager to get back. And then he, he, he ended up going back for a second tour. Do you know how your mother felt about him serving the second tour of duty after he'd been so badly injured in 1965? Well, obviously, you know, she was very supportive with anything that he did, but she was also um, concerned. You know, now they had a child. My sister Denise was born. And so um, he was a father to a young child um, and she was concerned and concerned for his safety and concerned with everything that goes about with your loved one going to war. You know, is he going to make it back? What kind of criticism is he going to face? She knew what was going on politically in the world with the Vietnam War. Um, so yeah, she was definitely concerned. But being the wife that she was and is, she's very supportive of every choice that dad ever made. How long was he back in Vietnam before May 2nd, 1968? Where was he stationed? And what was his assignment up to that day? Yeah, he had landed January um, 1968. So he had been there for about four months prior to the May 2nd mission. And he was stationed, uh, he went to Cambodia and they were in Lockning for the um, for the mission and it was classified. Still classified so, to this day. <laughs> so it's the morning of May 2nd, 1968, as you mentioned, near Lockning. Take it from yeah. there for us, what you can. So, you know, um, dad was not supposed to be on the mission. He was um, attending a church service. Um, back then, it, they had makeshift church services, and it was on the hood of a Jeep. And so he was just kind of hanging back, and he was attending the church service. And in the back, um, he can hear a call for help, dire straits, dire call for help. And he's asking, you know, the radio man, who is this? What team is out there? And he said, you know, I'm not for sure, but I think it's I think it's your buddy, Leroy Wright. And um, so Leroy Wright has another story with dad prior to a couple of months earlier, um, you know, he had saved my dad's life. Um, and so um, anyway, so when my dad heard that it was Leroy Wright, who was the team leader on this mission, and it was his team that was out there, my dad didn't hesitate. He was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go. And that was the type of person my dad obviously was, um, didn't think about what was he, what he was about to do. He just did it. And so he was armed with just a medic bag and his Bowie knife. And he got on the helicopter. And of course, who knows what they were telling him? No, this is, you know, you can't go. You're not supposed to be here. I leave, whatever. But my dad was said, no, I'm, I'm going to help these guys. Get me, get me there. So got on the helicopter as they're flying in, they discover, you know, obviously it's a hot zone. They, they he can't, the, the pilot can't land. And he's like, you know, just get me close enough to where I can jump. If I can jump off this helicopter, I'm in. And so they did that. My dad leaped off. The minute he leaped off, it was six hours in hell. Um, he was clubbed, hit, shot at, bayoneted. I mean, everything that you can think of was, was happening to his body. Um, he'd get up and keep moving forward. He knew that he had to, he was looking for Leroy Wright you know, wanted to, to, to help him, wanted to help obviously anybody who was, who needed the help. He knew that, um, 
Leroy Wright, if anything was was going on with him, if he was already dead, he had to get the classified documents from him because he held it on his bean. Um, and so, you know, my dad had his own mission and why he did the things that he did. And so he, one man after another, he's giving them aid. He's calling in airstrikes. He's, you know, just doing whatever he can take do to to get these men to a safe area they're shooting off the enemy my dad is shooting them with morphine he's getting them bandaged he's giving them ammunition he's doing whatever it takes and then he starts loading them one by one and carrying them across the jungles of this dense heavily dense where hundreds of nba are shooting at at them um gets them loaded to an airplane uh, to a helicopter the helicopter takes off it ends up crashing so my dad is like you know, okay, they've crashed. Now he just loaded these men. Now he has to get them off and reloaded to another aircraft. And so he unloads them, puts them in an area where they're safe and then waits for the other helicopter and then starts to reload again. In the meanwhile, he's being shot at, you know, um, grenades, the shrapnel from grenades are are hitting him. He's doing hand-to-hand combat. I mean, by the time he loaded the last person in the helicopter, his intestines were hanging out and he was about to die. I mean, he was on death's door, um, but he didn't want to leave anybody behind. So he wanted to make sure everybody was loaded. And so when they find, when he finally gave them the thumbs up for them to take off, they took off. And, you know, my dad talks about how just blood was just oozing out of the, the helicopter falling below the helicopter had, um, you know, bullet holes through, he could see the light coming through. I mean, it it was just, it was just uh, an amazing um, situation that he had just gone through. Incredible. Um, And and if you go on YouTube and you see, and you hear my dad speak, you know, my dad was a witty man and he talks about how um, right when they're taking off, he's, you know, his face is bloodied. His mouth is, is locked. It's like, just swollen shut. It's, it's, you know, his eyes are swollen and bloodied. He can't open his eyes. He can't open his mouth because it's locked. Blood is everywhere. I mean, he looks awful and he's like trying to breathe and grasping for air and gasping for air. And the medic there is like thinking he needs a tracheotomy. And my dad funnily, funny, funny in a funny way says, they're about to give me a tracheotomy. That's just too much for one day. And then they, they head off. And he's like, you know, even in that time, my dad still found the humor that he could bring to people who are listening to his story because he knows that when people hear things like this, it's going to be a trigger for them, especially if they were also in the war. So um, my dad, they land um, and um, they start unloading one after another. They're, they're, they're piling the dead in one area and the living in the other. My dad, because of, like I said, his eyes were swollen, his mouth was, you know, he, he looked like he was dead. He was put amongst the dead. He couldn't move, couldn't talk, obviously couldn't see nothing. He had very shallow breathing. He's put amongst the dead. And, um, ironically, I met the medic who my dad spit at. Um, a couple years ago. And if you hear him tell the story, he's going around and making sure that the dead aren't dead, you know, giving them, you know, the last rites, whatever he's 
zipping them up, doing whatever it, it needs to be um, identified as the dead. And he says that he's just, you know, they're just dead, dead, dead. And he comes to my dad and he's making sure that he is indeed dead. And he's, my dad had this gap in his teeth and he, little gap. And he says, he's looking at this thing, wiggling, 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 wiggling. And he looks closer and it's my dad's tongue. So that was my dad's means of communication to let these guys know that he was alive. Granted, they were already zipping him up into this body bag and he was about to be suffocate, suffocating to death. Um, but um, so as he sees that little wiggly thing, that's when my dad spat at him. And my dad says that was the luckiest shot he ever made. And so he was put amongst the living. Um, but also they found uh, some enemy soldiers amongst those people that my dad had boarded onto the helicopter. And my dad says he didn't want to leave anybody behind. So he was just loading and loading anybody that he could get. Unbelievable. I'm not sure how to follow up with that. I mean, that's why I just had to pause and just let that all sink in. It is unbelievable and it's incredible and it's overwhelming to, to say it and to relive it and to hear it. And um, I have to say a side note that my dad was a motivational speaker, obviously, after his time um, in the military and devoted 17 years to speaking about his experiences. And he said that it was the most torturous thing for him to do was to relive the experience. But if you see him speaking about it, you would never know that he was going through a mental anguish as he talked about it, but he felt like he had to relive it and he had to speak about it because he knew he was inspiring somebody out there. And that's the selflessness that my dad had, that it didn't matter what he was going through mentally or emotionally or spiritually. He wanted to help others. Very giving man, very, um, very um, emotional to talk about. To your point about him talking about it and being difficult for him, do you feel like that gave him a sense of almost like therapeutic to talk about each time and maybe soften it? Or was it just that painful to go through it every time he talked about it? it? It could have been therapeutic. I mean, in some way it had to have been because after he would speak about it, I'm sure he would, um, you know, be approached by people who had been there and obviously who had been uh, in, in similar wars. And so just to talk about it, you know, perhaps was therapeutic, but it was also very torturous. And, and when I, when I look at his eyes during the medal of honor ceremony, and I see president Reagan reliving, you know, reading the citation and it zooms to my father's eyes, I can see, I, I, I can just imagine that he's reliving it and, and how torturous it is for him. It was for him. We've been talking to Yvette Benavidez-Garcia, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Yvette Benavidez Garcia. Yvette is the daughter of Medal of Honor recipient and author of the book Tango Mike Mike, the story of Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. Yvette, before the break, we mentioned uh, Sergeant Leroy Wright. A month before May 2nd, 1968, your dad created a special bond with him. He and a wounded soldier became entangled in ropes lowered from a helicopter to rescue them. The ropes were about to break when Sergeant Wright lowered himself down from a chopper, disentangled the ropes, and saved your father's life. Did your dad feel a debt of gratitude to Sergeant Wright? And what kept him going so long and so effectively? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to know that this man saved your life, um, And um, he owed everything to him. And so when my dad hears that it's Leroy Wright's team who is on that mission, I mean, he didn't hesitate without a doubt. He was like, I'm going to go and help this guy. He's my brother in arms. He saved my life. I'm going to go save his. Um, But unfortunately, um, Leroy Wright did not make it. He was killed in action on May 2nd, 1968. Your father retired from the Army in 1976 after 24 years in the service. After his retirement, Roy Benavidez devoted the rest of his life to encouraging children to stay in school and get an education. I get the impression that whatever he did, he had more than just talk the talk. How active was he in that endeavor? Oh, you know, right after he received the medal, um, and it took 12 years for him to receive it after his uh, May 2nd, 1968 mission, Um, but he was asked by President Ronald Reagan to um, travel the country for just one year, and that's the operative number, one year. And he said, um, just go and speak to civic organizations, speak to schools, speak to military institutes, whoever will listen. But I want you to speak about your experience and I want you to encourage and persuade students to stay in school, stay off of drugs and stay out of gangs. And so I remember being a little girl, my dad sitting us down in the living room and asking us um, 
for permission. He said, because he was going to be gone a lot. And he said, and I, I want, I want y'all to know that president Reagan has asked me to do this and I'd like to do this, but I, I want y'all's permission to do this. And I remember saying, are you sure it's going to be just for a year? You know, because, you know, my brother and sister and I, we were involved in school. I played softball. Um, my brother played football. You know, we wanted him around to see our extracurricular activities and just to be there and and to do things with us and to, you know, travel and and things. And so I remember dad specifically saying, it is just for a year. I promise after a year, people are going to forget about me. And for 17 years, he traveled the world, the country, and he spoke to students and military institutes and civic organizations and churches and anybody who would ask him to come and speak, he would speak. And he, and he was very inspiring and um, he devoted his life to doing that um, and was considered a really sought after motivational speaker. A moment ago, you mentioned it took 12 years from his Medal of Honor. Despite that heroism you went through before the break, it wasn't really apparent up the chain of command right away, just extraordinary how his actions were. The time limit to nominate him for the medal had expired. So how do you eventually receive the Medal of Honor in 1981? Well, um, a lot of hard work and dedication, and he had a team of friends who helped him in that um, fight for the medal. Um, they began, um, you know, after my dad got sent to, um, after the May 2nd mission and he got sent to the um, hospital for recovery, um, one of the men who he had saved was um, Brian O'Connor and they were both medevac to the um, same hospital and their mode of communication was wiggling their toes because obviously they couldn't speak and they had just been through six hours in hell. Um, and, you know, by wiggling their toes, they were kind of like, are you okay? I'm okay. You know, we're alive. And then the next day, Brian O'Connor was shipped off to another hospital for recovery, but my dad didn't know that. He thought he had died. So, you know, he was one of the people who my dad had thought he saved. Um, my dad ultimately ended up saving eight men. Who, who lived. Um, and so he was one of them, but, you know, he needed all of these, um, these people to come forth and write their testimony of what had happened. And so um, prior to that, uh, some of the other men had written in, um, but Brian O'Connor was one of the people who was on that exact mission that dad was on. So he knew and saw everything. He was the only one. And so they didn't have his, his eyewitness account. Uh, Brian O'Connor, after the war, retired and just kind of, for lack of a better word, dropped off the face of the earth. He wanted his um, solidarity. He wanted to be alone. He didn't want anything to do with reliving or rehashing the war. So he became a hermit and was um, living in the Fiji Islands. Nobody had ever heard from him again. And so... Rewind to my dad's team of people who were helping him. And I say team because that's what it takes is people who are dedicated to help you and and what needs to get done. And so he had some friends who were, you know, writing congressmen and they were writing um, people in the political world, you know, anybody who would listen, the president, they were writing all these people, generals and colonels and all these men who they thought, you know, help us, where can we go from here? And they just needed that one eyewitness account and they were 
pretty much giving up. And one of his friends happened to be the editor of the local newspaper in the town that we live in. And his son was the um, contributing editor. And so their names are Fred and Chris Barbie. Fred has since passed, but Chris is still alive and is a part of our family. But Fred being in the, in the newspaper industry said, you know, I'm going to write an article about this and I'm going to write about everything that we're going through, um, what we want to do for you, how we're trying to upgrade your, you know, the Distributed Service Cross to Medal of Honor. Um, and we're going to write about this. And so he does, he writes a full page article. Um, the Associated Press picks it up. It goes global. It's a scene from a movie. Brian O'Connor is walking in the Fiji Islands, goes into a store, sees my dad's picture on the cover of a newspaper, and the rest is history. He goes, he reads the article, goes back to his room, and writes the 12-page um, account of what happened, mails it, sends it in, and then, you know, it, he, he, he ends up getting the Medal of Honor. Um, but he, he also ends up calling my dad. And, you know, my dad had a call sign in the military, and it was Tango Mike Mike. And we didn't even know that growing up had no clue that this was my dad's call sign. So my brother is in our den at our home and we get a phone call and Noel answers it. And the man on the other side says, can I speak to Tango Mike Mike? And my dad's like, who? So long story short, he goes into the kitchen. My dad's sitting there and he says, dad, there's some guy on the phone who wants to talk to you. He's asking for Tango Mike Mike. And my dad is like, you're kidding. Like, who is, like, who is this? Only, you know, few people know my, my call sign. Gets on the phone, and it's Brian O'Connor. And so they talk. He ends up uh, going to the Medal of Honor ceremony, and the Medal of Honor ceremony is where they, have, they meet and embrace after 12, 13 years. So. You mentioned uh, what your father's career was like or life was like after receiving the Medal of Honor. A moment ago, you mentioned the movie. I just want to read one line from President Ronald Reagan when he presented the Medal of Honor to your father, who obviously knew a few things about movies. <laughs> if the story of heroism were a movie script, you would not believe it. All right. That just sums up everything. Yeah. yeah. It, it's very surreal. It's very incredible. Um, it, it's, it's hard to believe what my father went through and everything that he went through in battles before, during, and after the war. And uh, yeah, if and when a movie is ever made, um, it's it's going to be pretty hard to uh, to depict that. But, uh, you know, God willing, one day we'll try as best as we can. Absolutely. Your dad was described over and over as a living legend. What was it like growing up as a child of a Medal of Honor recipient and a living legend? You know, growing up, I really didn't know of his notoriety. Um, I don't know if my brothers and sister did either. Um, my dad was not very, he didn't flaunt that. He didn't, you know, make note of I'm a Medal of Honor recipient, you know, um, in our eyes. Um, so I didn't know of his war experiences until later in life. So growing up, you know, we were still disciplined, like, you know, like any child would and should be, especially from a, a parent who's in the military. Um, but I mean, it, it was great growing up with him. He was very funny. He was very witty. 
Um, he could be very charming. And, and we saw that with, with my mom at times. Um, but um, in retrospect, I do see some little things that went on in his life that he hid from us. So he's a very protective father. And I say that because um, if he had post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm sure he did and confident that he did, we didn't know about it at the time. He didn't talk about it and it wasn't something that we overtly saw, but in retrospect, there's little things that we saw. So um, I'm proud of the fact that he was protective of us in that manner and that um, he cared enough about our mental fortitude to not have us see any kind of mental anguish that he was living or going through on a daily basis. Um, but it's pretty cool to have, you know, a Medal of Honor recipient, uh, an American icon as your dad. Um, because later in life, when I fully understood it, um, it was nice to see people come up to him and want to shake his hand and, um, just go out of their way to just to say thank you and to, uh, want to take their picture with him. And I felt very proud. And even obviously to this day, I still am very proud of the fact that he's my father and that people look up to him and are inspired and influenced by him. But, you know, we would drive on trips, let's just say going to San Antonio, um, because we still had family there. And um, my dad had a car that had a Medal of, Medal of Honor license plate, number 17. And um, he we would be driving and I would see people, you know, passing by and waving to us and thinking, Oh, they're so nice. Why are so people so nice? Everybody's waving to us. And, and again, it's not until retrospect years later that I, that I figure, you know, people are, are saying hi to him and people would, if we stopped at a rest area, there was always somebody who was following behind us and just wanting to get off and shake his hand. And, and, you know, and he'd shake their hand. Can I get a picture? My dad always carried uh, pictures and citations around. Um, and it was always giving them out, you know, because he knew, he knew it was coming, you know? Um, so little things like that. Um, but in the same breath, as I speak, those great moments like that, as we were driving, I always sat behind him and I could see shrapnel uh, ease, easing its way out of his head um, and fall to the ground or blood oozing out. And, um, you know, now I'm reminded constantly of the pain that he went through, the physical pain, and then the visual, you know, the things that I could see, um, you know, the limp that I saw, the, the, the muscles tensing up, the, um, his reaction to things. If we were eating at a restaurant, you don't come up behind him and scare him. Um, but you know, little things like that at the time he would play it off in a funny manner. So imagine he's scared because somebody's coming up or breaking a plate or making a loud noise. Uh, he's very scared, but yet he played it off in the, in, in a funny manner to us so that we wouldn't be scared or confused or, you know, anguished by it. Um, so that just goes to show you the type of father he was always concerned about us. Your dad passed away in November, 1998. He had so many things to be proud of, but was there one thing in which he took the most pride? You're going to make me cry.
yeah, his family. He was he was very proud of us, and uh, you could see it when he talked about us. And uh, when his children got married, he gained, um, you know, with Denise, and she married Stan. He gained another son, and when I married Renee, he gained another son, and when Noel married Andrea, he gained another daughter. And then when the grandkids started to be born, he was proud of them. So, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Take your time. Take your time. Thank you for asking that. Um, he it's was important. very proud of us. I know he was. And I knew that was going to be the answer anyway. <laughs> so you were born in Fort Riley, Kansas, graduated yes. from the University of Texas, and became a teacher. Share your career with us. <laughs> Bookham Horns had to Book throw that horns. Um, Yes. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a graduate uh, and, a, and an alumni of the University of Texas at Austin, class of 1993. Um, I remember being a little girl and we were driving through Austin and I had no clue what college uh, was or universities or any of that. Uh, neither one of my parents went to college, although my mother did graduate from high school, my dad did not. So I didn't have that as any kind of inspiration, but I remember driving past um, the field um, at the University of Texas. And I remember telling my dad, you know, what is that? And he said, oh, that's the University of Texas at Austin. And I said, what is that? And he told me, and, and I said, I wanna go there. And he said, well, you know, one day you can, if you work hard and you put your mind to it, you can, it's very cliche. And um, never forgot that. And so when I had the opportunity to apply and got accepted, um, it's it's one of my proudest moments. And um, so I did not originally go into the field of education. Um, I took an alternative certification course to get certified to teach. And um, and I, you know, my dad obviously has a, a lot of influence in that. Um, but also the fact that I'm a, a mother and I knew that I wanted to be a mother and I wanted to um, be with my kids during summer break and all that stuff. That was, you know, the, one of my influences, but my dad, um, because I saw him go and speak to kids and, and I could see that aha moment in all the kids' eyes when he spoke to them. I wanted that too. And I remember telling him that I was going to be a teacher and he was like, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's great. Um, so, you know, eventually I did become a teacher um, and it, it took many, many years and Denise as well. My sister Denise is also a, a teacher. Uh, currently I'm out of the classroom per se and I'm a literacy interventionist for dyslexic students, for students who have Erlins and for our ESL students. So we play a small role in your career. Small role. Very small. Yes. <laughs> Very little. No. Now, now we got you to laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your father was honored in many ways, including the naming of his school after him. In 2003, the USS Benavidez was completed and assigned to the Department of Defense's Military Sealift Command. What was that experience like? That was surreal um, because it was a Navy ship. And of course, in the branch of the military that we're in, we are Army and I'm an Army brat. So the fact that the Navy wanted to commission a ship after an Army 
um, person was just incredible. But being there and actually getting to see the ship and christening it, my mother was alive to christen it. Um, it was just epic. It was amazing. And um, you can follow the USNS Benavides if you um, Google it and you can see where it's uh, port at. Um, it was in um, Texas um, at Corpus Christi. And I don't know where it's currently at because it does move, but it is active. So we're very proud of that. Your father was a hero, as we know but he also lived in a very different time. Did he experience discrimination and prejudice because of heritage before his time in the service? Oh, absolutely. Sad to say um, the time that he lived in was very much full of hate and discrimination. Um, and he lived a life of poverty. So that had something to do with it as well. But, you know, my dad lived in a town where, um, unfortunately, they looked at the color of your skin. And so because he was of Native American descent and Hispanic descent, um, he had dark skin. And um, he was called a, um, you know, a Mexican, um, a dumb Mexican, because he was a dropout. Um, so he couldn't go into a restaurant uh, through the front doors. Um, he had to go through the back door or he had to stay outside. If he went to the movies, he, he had to go through a different door that was only for Mexicans or Blacks. And he had to sit upstairs in the balcony. Um, the signs on the doors at restaurants said no Mexicans, no Blacks or dogs allowed. So he was put in the same category as dogs. Um, and so, you know, that played heavily, obviously, in his mind and in his heart. Um, and then it it really, you know, obviously we see that today in our society that we live in. But even after he came back from the war um, and received the medal, um, he did continue to face uh, discrimination. And it's sad to say that even now, you know, I still every once in a while will see um, some hate comments on social media pertaining to my father. Um, and it, it's really sad because, you know, it, it, I, in my opinion, it comes from a place of not only ignorance, but of jealousy. And um, for my father's, um, you know, defense, it, it was the same. And, and when he lived in the on the street that we lived in, we had a neighbor who was um, very hateful and very vocal about my father's um, the fact that he didn't work a nine to five job, but yet he still got up every morning and walked or, you know, he still got up and spoke to people or, you know, whatever. And so, you know, discrimination and hate and bigotry, it takes many forms. And um, sadly, um, even to this day in my father's passing, he still receives that type of hatred and discrimination. Um, but, you know, my dad taught us and um, and he would, if he were here today, I know he would he would not be vocal in the aspect of fighting words against words with people. Um, my dad always said, you know, you're okay, the world's wrong. Don't worry about it. And that was the life that we lived. I never, even though, you know, I read about our neighbor who was very hateful to him and the things that she said, I never, heard my parents not once utter anything bad or negative towards her back, the neighbor back. Um, 
they were not like that, you know, in this day and age, I think a lot of kids hear and see grownups, their teachers, their friends, their parents talk negative about others. And they see that hate and they see that anguish and that bitterness and that rudeness, they see it. And then therefore they mimic that. We never, I never saw that with my parents. Now that's not to say that they didn't say it amongst themselves, but they never vocalized it in front of us. So I never, if my dad was um, angry towards these people, I never heard it vocalized. Never. Even though he was being thrown these darts of hatred and, you know, defamatory, just these words that would just, that were awful. I mean, I never heard him, you know, fight back. We talked about the book earlier. Please tell our listeners how they can contact you, where they can learn more about your father's incredible career, and where they can find the book, Tangle Mike Mike, the story of Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. So I am um, an administrator for my dad's social media sites. Um, I have a Facebook page that I administer on his behalf. So you can go to Facebook, um, Tango Mike Mike, Roy P. Benavides. Um, you can um, friend me, Yvette Benavides Garcia, on Facebook. I also administer a Twitter account for him and Instagram. And I recently got on TikTok, although I only post videos that are of my father and that are obviously hopefully inspiring of him. Um, and on Facebook, I do post podcasts like this that I've been on or anything that the family has done recently or I'll post accolades. And I just like to keep the the his followers, his um, friends and family members up to date on what's going on in his life, even though it's been 20 you know, 24 years since his passing. Um, but um, they can email me if they're interested in a signed autograph copy of the book at Yvette B. Garcia, Y-V-E-T-T-E, B as in boy, Garcia at gmail.com. And I, um, we can set up, you know, PayPal, Venmo, whatever, and I can send them a signed copy of my book where they can order it on Amazon. Awesome. Yvette Benavides Garcia, thanks so much for being with us today. And thank you for your family's sacrifice and service. Thank you. I appreciate this time. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.